Do you have questions that people ask you from time to time that just uh, make you uncomfortable, anxious? You wish that question wouldn't come up. Hey, you ever get questions like that? Maybe it's just kind of because of my role in life. I get questions, uh, and oftentimes those questions spur um, sermons. Sometimes it's backwards. I already have a sermon in the plans this Sunday. But I got a phone call this week from uh, one of my bike riding buddies. Dave and I have been friends for almost 15 years, 13, 14 probably. And he called to tell me that his older brother Chuck had passed away. And he and I talked about Chuck for a number of years, Chuck's health issues and other issues. And uh, He asked me a question and he said, I know my brother has been a backslider. He hasn't lived for the Lord. And I'm concerned about whether or not he went to heaven. Um, you only have to pray that prayer once, right? That was his question to me. How do you answer that question? How do you respond to that question? Or, here's another one. Maybe you've heard this testimony. I accepted Jesus. I invited him into my heart when I was a child. And then I got into drugs and alcohol and sex and stealing and murder and mugging and other things I don't want to mention. And then at the age of 40, I came back to Jesus. Huh. There's lots of questions that grow out of those two uh, conversations. Um, and I have questions about the world in which you and I live. I have questions about the Christian culture that you and I are a part of, especially the Christian culture in, in this country. In the United States of America, 62% of people in the U.S. say they have a mean, meaningful relationship with Jesus. Huh. 10% of those born-again Christians believe in reincarnation. Huh. 25% of the evangelical church believe that Jesus sinned. Huh. 64% of U.S. believe, 64% of the U.S. population believe they're headed to heaven. I was kind of shocked by that. I thought it'd be a lot higher. You know, 0.05% are headed to hell. Believe they're headed to hell. 18% of those having abortions in the United States claim to be born-again Christians. I have trouble putting those things together in my mind. Does that, does that cause a little disequilibrium for you and your worldview about being a follower of Jesus? Well, then there's this. 80 to 90% of people who make decisions for Jesus disappear and are never found or heard from again. There was a major denomination in the 1990s. They declared the 1990s their decade of harvest with a focus on evangelism and outreach and reaching people for Jesus. Is that a good thing, by the way? That's a great thing. That's an awesome thing. They recorded in their decade 294,000 decisions but could only account a year later for 14,000. 280,000 decisions were gone. So what's happening? Is that real? I struggle to answer my friend Dave's question about his brother Chuck. Kind of for two reasons. One, I don't know Chuck. I've only heard what my friend Dave has said about him. 
And God's the ultimate judge, right? We all understand that, so we're not going to sit in judgment of whether his brother went to heaven or not. But on the other hand, I always hate to give people a false sense of security. And sometimes I struggle to find the middle ground. Anyone else ever been there? Is this kind of only Pastor Roy thing? And so I want you to come with me to Mark chapter 4. Because in Mark chapter 4, I believe that Jesus gives us some insights into some of this disequilibrium in our Christian world. In the world in which you and I live. And there's some important truths that Jesus wants us to kind of wrap our hearts around this morning. Mark chapter 4 marks a a change in the flow of Mark's gospel. And if you're paying attention as you read through Mark's gospel, what's happening is, in the first three chapters, it starts off with Jesus, well it starts off at the very beginning with whose ministry? John the Baptist. And out of John the Baptist's ministry of baptizing Jesus, Jesus goes into the wilderness, he comes out. John, Jesus is preaching the kingdom, repent, believe the kingdom, uh, believe the gospel of the kingdom. And Mark is showing us Jesus the servant, and he's healing a leper, he's healing the guy with a withered hand, he's healing the paralyzed guy that comes down from the, through the roof. And there's this, this beginning of some of the controversy and conflict with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and, and all these people. But now, as chapter 4 opens, all these multitudes of people have been following Jesus. The multitudes of people have been coming to Jesus to listen to him teach and to watch him heal. But as Mark chapter 4 opens, things are going to change now. Jesus is purposely thinning the herd, if you will. He's narrowing down who's going to be willing to follow him. It's kind of like about six or seven years ago. Do you remember you had an annual pass to Disneyland? And they increased your annual pass by, my pass went up 35%. Why did Disneyland do that? They were trying to thin the herd. They were trying to get people like me to say, eh, done, I'm out. Well, their plan worked even better than they thought because instead of thinning the herd, they were getting as many people or more and not getting more money. Um, Jesus is looking to thin who's really committed, who's really in to stay, who's really going to follow. That's where Jesus is going as Mark continues to tell us about the ministry of Jesus. And so Mark chapter 4 opens with this parable of four soils. And these four soils represent four hearts. How many of you have ever read this chapter before? Yeah, almost all of us have read this chapter. How many of you have ever heard sermons on this chapter before? All of us have heard multiple sermons. And so you're sitting back and going, huh, I've heard this before, right? Now fasten your seatbelt. If you turn your train to its upright position, here we go. Mark chapter 4. Jesus began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. The whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So get the picture. Jesus has pushed this boat out a little bit from shore. He's out in the, in the Sea of Galilee. People are gathered on the, on the land. I don't know if acoustics are helped by water. Someone could explain that to me, but I think that's a little bit of what's going on. But rabbis typically taught seated. 
And so that's where Jesus is in, in this boat, seated. And he's teaching them many things in parables. And saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. <laughs> so I want to encourage you this morning. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. <clears throat> Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, and because it had no depth of soil, and after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. <clears throat> Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell onto the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop, produced thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Simple agricultural metaphor, right? Those who were farming and doing agriculture in the first century uh, didn't have the heavy equipment that you see on the farms in Indiana and Ohio and Pennsylvania today, right? I have a cousin that farms in Ohio, and every once in a while, he, he, he or my cousin, his wife, will put pictures on, on Facebook of these big machines that they use in their farming. It was a lot simpler back then. They would plow up the ground with a, with a wooden plow, pulled behind a donkey perhaps, or an oxen, and then they would scatter seed by hand, and they would just toss the seed out. And so Jesus is using the simple metaphor. There's little footpaths on the side of the, the, uh, the area that's being sown with seed. And that footpath is a hard surface. Alongside the edges of that area where the seed is being sown, there's weeds and bushes and thorns. And so some of the seed gets tossed in there. And so Jesus is using a simple, simple metaphor. Not hard to understand, is it? Not yet. But then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. So I want you to get kind of three big ideas this morning that uh, we need to understand. The first big idea is this. The seed needs to be sown if there's going to be a harvest, right? If you're a farmer and you're depending on a harvest at the end of the season, you have to do what? You've got to plant some seeds. You've got to sow some seeds. There will be no harvest unless seeds are sown. Not going to be any harvest. And if you notice what the text says, the seed that's planted is the Word of God. Who's the sower? Jesus is the sower. And so when you extrapolate that into the 21st century, if Jesus is the sower, how is He sowing seeds in the world today? 
uses you and me. You and me. It's us. We are the ones that are to be sowing seed. If there's going to be a harvest, we need to sow seed. It's imperative. And there's so many passages in the Bible that speak to us about the ministry of sowing seeds. You know, the, the, the basic Great Commission. What's that passage saying in Matthew 28? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and so on. Luke records it, that the, the gospel of repentance needs to be preached in all the world. Jesus said to his disciples before he was ascended into heaven, you should receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses, right? The passage that Vet read for us this morning is perhaps the most powerful. That God has committed to you and to me the ministry of what? Reconciliation. If there is going to be harmony or reconciliation between men and women in the world today and the eternal creator God who sent his son to die on the cross, if there's going to be reconciliation and harmony, it's going to happen how? By those who faithfully fulfill their role as ministers of reconciliation. Seed must be sown. I think of this often in my life. The, the connections we have with people, the conversations we have with people, the people we encounter. We ought to be consciously considering the idea that we are sowing seeds wherever we go. If there's going to be a harvest, we've got to sow seeds. If there's going to be a harvest, we've got to sow seeds. The second thing that impresses me in this passage is this. The quality is in the seed not in the soil. You got four different soils. And it's the same seed, right? The same word of God, the same gospel message. The quality is in the seed, the message. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is what the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the seed. One of the realizations that ought to strike you if you think about that is the pressure is off of you and me, right? The pressure's off. It doesn't matter how much education you have or don't have. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a child or an adult. The gospel power is in, the seed is in the gospel, not in me, it's not in you. The pressure's off of us. Our simple job is to do what? Scatter seed. Scatter seed. We do that in a variety of ways. We might have opportunity to scatter seed verbally. To engage someone in conversation, have spiritual conversation. I called a friend of mine last night, my friend Roger, that comes with us frequently on Sundays. And he says, yeah, I'm at lunch with a friend of mine. We're talking about religion. And there's a scary thought, right? And he says, he's a Drew. And I said, a Drew? Do you mean a Druid? And he said, no. But his friend overheard my question on the phone. He says, well, kind of. Well, that's going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> we don't have time to go into Druids in Middle Eastern. Yeah, never mind. Um, 
But we have those opportunities for spiritual conversations. We might sow seeds simply by the, the way we behave, the way that we act, the decisions we make, the choices we make. We sow seeds in, in a variety of ways. But if we don't sow seeds, there's no harvest. The quality is in the seed. And then the third big idea that's here is this. The seed produces four different results. And so you see this in the, uh, in the parable of Jesus because there's four soils and two of the soils have immediate response. Immediate, instant, if you will. Quick response. The first, inst- the first kind of soil is that, that hard soil. The seed that falls on hard ground. And that seed is going to accomplish what? Nothing. One of the first things my wife does every morning is she picks up her little bottle of bird seed. And she goes out of the backyard on our patio, which is all brick, and scatters bird seed on the patio. I love it when the bird seed stays on the bricks because the birds eat it and it's gone. But if the birds drop it in my lawn, guess what that bird seed does? It sprouts up because it's not in good, good soil. And so there's this hard ground, like my brick patio, and that seed isn't going to do anything there. And so Jesus draws the parallel and says, just like the seed that falls on hard ground, and the birds come and eat it, in the same way, Satan snatches the seed away. Have you ever talked to somebody and tried to share the gospel with them and they had a hard, unresponsive heart? That is one of the most, I want to say frustrating, that's not a very good word. Um, That's one of the most discouraging and disappointing times when you're trying to share God's truth with someone and it's just a non-responsive heart. Instead of questions, you get statements. I don't believe this, I don't believe that, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe this. There's just, there's, it's just hard, hard, hard. Satan snatches the seed away. And that happens how quickly? Immediately. The second soil that Jesus talks about also experiences immediate results. And that's the the seed that falls on the rocky soil. And so in Israel, there's a lot of the land of Israel that has a very uh, strong subsurface of rock and stone. You can't plant vineyards there. You can't plant orchards there. It just isn't going to happen. And so they knew the reality of where they scattered seed and where they needed to plant crops. What happens, Jesus says, when the seed falls among those stones? What happens? There's, There's no soil to put roots down into there's no place to draw nourishment. And so those, those, those stones in the ground prohibit any kind, of, any kind of growth. And so you see here on the list that I've made from that passage, number five says, how do they respond to the gospel? Joy. It's, it's good news. It's joy. But something's wrong. It's temporary. It's like the sun scorching the plant, plant withers and dies. What is it that causes the gospel message to fail to take root 
in someone's life. Jesus tells us it's the trials and persecutions of life that cause that kind of response. Do you know anybody who made a decision for Jesus and then at some point in time kind of walked away, very much walked away because of some crisis, some tragedy, some event? That's a very disheartening experience to see someone who responds with such great joy and then because they experience uh, a disease, a family member who dies, uh, a family member lost in a car accident, whatever the crisis is, it causes this response instead of being drawn to God. What did that song say this morning, Maggie, about eyes lifted up above the waves? If, you, if, if in those circumstances of life we can't look up and see the Lord and be drawn to Him for His strength and help, what happens? Well, this is what happens. Disappear. The third surface is that, that surface with the thorns. And the first two responses, Mark says, as he quotes Jesus, the word immediate, this third response is kind of a short-lived experience where someone makes some kind of a positive response to the gospel message. But over a period of time, what happens? Well, Jesus says it's the worries and cares of this age, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for things. Those become the forms in a person's life. And they pull back. They no longer walk with Jesus. They no longer follow Him. Paul had this experience. He, he writes about it in uh, 2 Timothy. I think it's 2 Timothy. He talks about a guy by the name of Demas. Demas had followed Jesus. Demas had attached, attached himself to Paul. He traveled with Paul. And yet Paul records the sad word about Demas. that he, he says, Demas has forsaken me because he loved the things of this world. You know anybody like that? I've probably shared the story before. One of, one of my saddest days in my, my church when I pastored in Sacramento was the lunch appointment I had every week with one of the young men in the church named Rich. And uh, we typically met and had lunch at uh, one of the old A&W root beers there on the side of the American River in Sacramento. There's still one of those around, isn't there, Ron? A&W out in Mentone, is that the only one? I think the one in Sacramento is long gone. But Rich and I would meet there for lunch, and we would share scripture, and I was discipling him and kind of helping him to learn and grow. And over lunch that day, he said to me, I've decided to go back and live like a pagan. I'm done being a Christian. And he was comparing himself to his brothers. His brothers had all these good things going on in their lives. Their businesses were successful. They were making money hand over fist. And he was struggling. And he's going to go back and be a pagan like his brothers. Boy, just telling that story. It's like it just happened last week. That's heartbreaking. But that's one of the realities of how people respond. They, they respond positively, but over time, it's the, the stuff of this life, the stuff of this world that, that draws them away. 
happens a lot. The first two are immediately results. Hard ground, stony ground. The third one is kind of short-lived. Don't you love the fourth soil? The good soil? Because the good soil is where the good stuff happens, right? The good soil is where you, you plant the seed and it sprouts and produces fruit. And, and, and Jesus even says some crops are going to be 30%, 60%, some 100%. Which they all were 100%. Crops. Seed. So the bottom line in all of this that impresses me The bottom line that impresses me is this. What what is the evidence of the seed producing the kind of results that God allows? What was that word? Fruit. What is it that proves the reality of the coming together of the soil and seed? that that's been positive and effective? What is the proof that that was a solid event? Fruit. Fruit. And so, as I think about that, as I've thought about that, we oftentimes are guilty of looking at all the wrong stuff. In my friend Dave's mind, as he thought about his brother Chuck. Chuck's passing away last week. In my friend Dave's mind, what he was hanging on to as confidence that his brother would be in heaven, what he was hanging on to was that his brother had prayed a prayer one time. Does praying the prayer, is that all it takes? I fear a lot of people put a lot of confidence in the prayer that, by the way, doesn't appear in the Bible. Um, A lot of people have their confidence in the fact that there was this, this day in the past when they raised their hand or they walked an aisle or there was some event. And as I read the scriptures and as I reflect on this, this parable, The thing that Jesus is looking for that proves the reality of a salvation experience. What Jesus is looking for in your life and my life is what? Fruit. Fruit. If you have time and interest, one of the fascinating things you might do is just do a little just do a little scan of all the verses in the New Testament that talk about fruit. There's a boatload of them. And uh, we're going to talk about a few of them this morning. So if you're looking for fruit, what kind of fruit is Jesus looking for? Well, here's my list. The first fruit he's looking for, the, the uh, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, as the crowds and the masses were coming to him to be baptized, he said to them in these words, Therefore, bear fruit, keeping with repentance. There ought to be fruit that flows out of my life that's reflective of the fact that I've come to Jesus 
I have repented of sin, turned my back on sin, and turned toward the Lord. There ought to be fruit that's consistent with repentance in my life. Interestingly, John the Baptist spoke those words to the Pharisees. I don't know that they were paying much attention. Uh, Another passage that um, I found that encouraged me a little bit. uh, In Colossians 1.10, it says that fruit is doing good, good works. In Colossians 1.10, it says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There ought to be a fruitfulness in your life and my life of doing good. One of the the great statements I love in the New Testament says about Jesus, Jesus went about doing good. That ought to be true in my life and ought to be true in your life as well. Many of us memorize those classic two verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Probably one of, some of the earliest verses I memorized back in junior high school when I was got started in memorizing the, the Navigator's topical memory system. Anybody do that back in the 60s? Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Many of you haven't memorized like I do, I hope. You know, what's it say? What's it? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. What's it say? By grace, you have been saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? That, that whole passage. How many of you memorized verse 10? Yeah, me neither. Oh, you did. Good for you, Rod. Yeah, verse 10 goes on. And what's it, what's it say, Janine? We are God's workmanship created in for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. There ought to be a fruitfulness in each of our lives where, where someone could point and say, there, there's a guy that does good. There's a woman that does good things. You have to figure out what the good works are that God's appointed for you. They're probably different than the ones He's appointed for me. But that, that, that's fruitfulness. Uh, here's another fruit. Fruit is righteousness. Fruit is living a holy life. Fruit is godliness. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. <laughs> Philippians 1.11 says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The, there ought to be evidence in your life and my life of a righteous, holy life. How would you define that? The simplest definition I know when I think of living a righteous, holy life is trying to live my life the best I know how according to the precepts of this book, right? I've probably shared the illustration before when I went to Biola and uh, registered and enrolled as a student. um, Part of the process of enrolling and registering was a, a form that I had to sign. And that form said, I won't smoke, I won't drink, I won't dance. You know, I won't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, and I don't go with the girls that do. Um, you know, so we had this list that we had to sign. And we did it at Grace, too, didn't we, Bob? We sure did. And so there was this list. And uh, I always remember one of my professors at Biola 
said one day in class, because he had to sign the list too, all the profs did. He said in class one day, he said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just all agree and sign a statement that says something like, it is my heart's desire and ambition to always live my life in a way that pleases Jesus my Lord. Sign that in a heartbeat. Righteous life. It's not about a grocery list, it's about what? Pleasing Jesus. That's what it's all about. Does my life please Jesus? And if Jesus is poking and prodding in my life at stuff that doesn't please him, what do I do about it? So fruit is fruit is righteousness. Anybody get comfortable yet? You're all good? Uh, another kind of fruit. This might be the passage that jumped into your mind. Um, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, he has what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, right? And some of you have that verse memorized. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. What's the next one after patience? Kindness, goodness, self-control. That whole list. You know, that's an interesting list to kind of compare your life to, Right? Is my life marked by love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience? I'll forget patience. I could do with the other ones better. <laughs> but the other thing that's interesting in, uh, in Galatians 5 is that Paul, in this list that he gives us, sets it in contrast to a different list. What's that list? You have the fruit of the Spirit contrasted with the deeds of the flesh. And so you have these other things that ought not to be part of my life and your life. And Paul's list says immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, the fruit of the Spirit is fruit that ought to be evident in my life and your life. So there's something else to think about, fruit. Those who genuinely come to faith in Jesus ought to be living lives that are fruitful. There ought to be fruit that gives testimony and evidence to the reality of my faith and my relationship with Jesus. Fruit is also gratitude and praise. Hebrews 13, 15 um, says this. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Isn't that amazing that every time you respond to the circumstance of life with thanksgiving, every time you respond to the events that take place in your life with thanks and praise to the Lord, that is fruit that demonstrates the reality that your relationship with Jesus has put down deep roots. Unlike that rocky soil where there's no roots and the plant withers, you put down roots and you're producing fruit. A grateful heart, a grateful spirit, gratitude. Here's the last one on my list. There's probably others, but John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, I chose you and appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. <laughs> so there's a fruitfulness in my life and your life 
that flows out of those conversations we have with people where we have the opportunity to share the gospel. And, and people are responding because it's good soil. And yes, you're going to talk to people, and I talk to people that have hard hearts and have rocky soil and have thorny soil. But isn't it a wonderfully amazing thing when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and instead of statements of what they don't believe, they start asking questions and they ask about this and they ask about that and why do you believe this and how do you understand that? And, and there's, a, there's a, a seeking inquisitiveness in that good soil. Jesus said, I've chosen you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. There's four soils, four results. One is eternal. One lasts forever. And I think one of the sad realities in the world in which you and I live is that there are many people who make a claim to following Jesus whose lives do not evidence fruit that would prove that that's the case. Sadly, that's true. That could even be true in this church. It could be true in other churches. And so I, I, I looked at this passage in these four soils, and I think on the one hand, there's a value to being kind of a fruit inspector, understanding God's making the final judgment. I don't stand in judgment of my friend Dave's brother, whether he's in heaven today or not. I don't know. But I looked at the fruit, and it raises a question for me. And so there's a value to being a fruit inspector. Most importantly, there's a value of inspecting your own fruit. It ought to start here, right? How's, how's that fruitfulness thing going on in my life? When I look at this list that I just read through, you know, uh, how fruitful is my life? Is my life bearing all of the kinds of fruit that God would like to see in my life? And if there's places where I'm not as fruity as I ought to be, you know, maybe that's something me and Jesus need to talk about. Jesus, make me a little more fruity, a little more fruitful. But help me to do that. Help me to bear evidence. We need to be sowing seeds. And those seeds, our prayer is always that those seeds will bear fruit, right? And then to, to look for fruit. Look for fruit in my life. Look for fruit in the lives of others. I want to tell you, there's nothing I don't think that's more exciting uh, to me as a pastor to observe someone who comes to faith and their life just progressively becomes more and more fruitful. More and more productive of demonstrating these kind of qualities that I've talked about. Years ago in Russia when it was illegal and very dangerous to be a Christian, a group of believers was gathering in a home in secret for a time of fellowship, a time of the word, a time of prayer. Suddenly the door burst open and two Russian soldiers rushed in with their weapons and one of those soldiers said, If you're not willing to die today for your faith in Jesus, get out of here. Several of the people jumped up and ran out. The soldiers then laid down their rifles and pulled out their Bibles and said, We've come to pray with you, but uh, we have to be careful about being reported to the authorities. I thought about hiring a couple of big dudes and having them rush in this morning with guns and do that, but... 
I was afraid we'd have several funerals this week for heart attacks. So. How fruitful are you? And are you committed to sowing seeds? Sowing seeds in the lives of people <coughs> need to know Jesus. Need to know the Savior. Need to know forgiveness of sin. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would speak into each of our hearts. Make us fruitful to the max. Make us fruitful for you. And as I bow my head this morning, I'm reminded of that scary, scary passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I just think of how scary that would be. And so Lord, help us this morning just to be faithful, honest fruit inspectors. Starting first in our own life, taking inventory, conversation with you about fruitfulness. And help us be faithful and just sowing seeds. Remind us of Paul's words that some sow and some water and God gives the increase. You're the one who accomplishes harvest. Our task is just to scatter seed. So help us be faithful to do that. Come by your spirit and poke and prod in our hearts this morning. That we might be faithful, fruitful followers of Jesus. We ask these things in his name.
suggested before, pray for Bob. Pray for a burden for lost people. Pray for opportunity. And then pray for boldness. Pray for Bob this week as you scatter seed. That God would increase your burden to reach lost people. He would open doors of opportunity for you. And then give you a boldness to step through the door. So have a great week scattering seed. Amen. All right? I got one amen. Good. Amen. All right.